Word of God for our consideration this morning comes to us from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, selected verses. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not allow anyone to put the yoke of slavery on you again. After all, brothers, you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as a starting point for your sinful flesh. Rather, serve one another through love. In fact, the whole law is summed up in this one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you keep on biting and devouring one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What I am saying is this. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out what the sinful flesh desires. For the sinful flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful flesh. In fact, these two continually oppose one another, so that you do not continue to do these things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the control of the law. Now the works of the sinful flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, complete lack of restraint, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, orgies, and things similar to these. I warn you, just as I warned you before, that those who continue to do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful flesh with, with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with it. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. This is the word of the Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who has set us free. Have you ever noticed that many of the biggest milestones in life involve the achievement of some level of freedom. For example, you get your first bike or maybe you get your driver's license in your first car, you have a measure of freedom. You are freed from having to rely on your parents or others to transport you around. You're free to explore. Consider moving out of the house, going to college, or getting your own place. You are now set free from the household rules. Think of retiring. You are now free from the work week. All of those achievements, all of those milestones in life come with some level of freedom. But if you've achieved any of those milestones, you know that you're not completely free. In fact, with greater freedom often comes greater responsibility. Just ask any of the retirees here in this room. In talking to many of you, I know you're busier now than you were even when you were working full-time. As I relate to Paul's words here, well, for the first four chapters of Galatians, Paul has been arguing adamantly that a person can only be saved in one way. That is, by grace, through faith in Christ alone. That is the only way that a person could be saved. It's not up to us, not up to our works, not up to our effort, not up to anything that we must do. But now in chapter 5, he, be, he responds to a criticism, a criticism that is often hurled against anyone who would teach or confess that we are saved completely by God's grace, that it is totally free gift to us. 
and that's this charge. You can't tell people that. You can't tell people that they are saved freely by God's grace, that they don't have to do anything in order to be saved. What do you think they're going to do if you tell them that? Whatever they want. They'll go back to their sinful ways. For example, you stop telling your child what they must eat for supper, or you tell them, you can go to bed whenever you want. They're probably not going to make the decision that is best for them, the right decision. They will, they will give in to their sinful flesh and just do what they want to do. That's the logic behind that allegation. But it's interesting, Paul doesn't waver. He doesn't say, yeah, you're right. Maybe I shouldn't be telling people that they are totally saved by grace, totally freely. But he doesn't do that. He stands firm in his conviction. He stands firm in Christian freedom. He writes this in in verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not allow anyone to put the yoke of slavery on you again. You may or may not know that the the verse numbers and the chapters in in our Bibles are not inspired. They They were only developed a couple hundred years ago. And so commentators argue over whether this verse belongs with what was preceding or what comes after. And there's room for error because, like I said, the verse numbers are not inspired. But at least one commentator that I studied argued that this is a Janus verse. Janus is the Roman god of gateways or doorways, and he's often depicted as having two faces pointing in opposite directions, meaning that Part of him is looking towards the past, and part is looking towards the future. And if this is truly that kind of a verse, then it connects to both what precedes and what follows. So before we consider what living our lives as liberated Christians means and what it looks like, we have to consider the past, what we were. We were slaves. You may not think so. You may not have shackle marks on your wrists or your ankles, but Jesus says very clearly, whoever continues to sin is a slave to sin. When we lie, when we curse, when we lust, when we covet, when we hate, hurt, and steal, we are demonstrating that we are slaves to sin. How? Because when we sin... We are bound by that. We can't do anything to remove the sin. You may be able to ask for forgiveness for a lie that you told to someone, but you can't get rid of that lie. That's there forever. You can't do anything about it. Our sins define us. They enslave us. They ensnare us. Maybe some of you are dealing with an addiction or a predilection to some weakness. And you know You know, when you wake up in the morning and you say, I don't want to do this anymore, how hard it is to break free from that slavery, from those desires. We know what it means to be a slave to those sins. You might think, well, let's be like the the founding fathers and let's fight for our own freedom. Tragically, that only leads to a worse situation than the one we were in before. Because we can't, by our work, by our effort, Obey the law. You can memorize the Ten Commandments, sure. You can strive to be a better spouse and a better parent and a better friend. You can try to do that every single day of your life, and I guarantee you this, you will end up dead before you ever end up keeping the law perfectly. 
we were slaves. Enslaved to sin that we couldn't get rid of. Enslaved to a law that we cannot keep. And we were powerless to free ourselves. That's why it's such good news that Paul says, but Christ has set us free. He set us free very particularly from both sin and obedience to the law. He set us free from obedience to the law by obeying the law perfectly in our place. Now he credits that obedience to us. That Now that God looks at you, he sees Jesus' perfect obedience. He doesn't see your sinful record. All he sees is Jesus' perfectly pure robe of righteousness. And after Jesus lived a perfect life in our place, and he took those sins, those lies, those curses, all that lust, all that covetousness, the hatred, the hurt, and the greed, and he paid for it on Calvary's cross, every last one of it. Now you're free. You are totally free. Don't let anyone rob you of that freedom that Christ died to win for you. Don't let anyone try to convince you that there is something you must do in order to be saved. That there is some experience you must have. That you must be a better person in order for God to love you in Christ Jesus. Don't look to your merits. Don't look to your works. Don't look to your offerings. Don't look to anything that you do as your confidence for salvation because your salvation has already been accomplished by Jesus 2,000 years ago. Don't let anyone rob you of that freedom. Because if you do not stand firm in that freedom, then you once again become a slave. A slave not only to your sinful desires, but a slave to the law, which you cannot keep. Stand firm in your Christian freedom. But also remember that it doesn't end there, right? The Janus verse. So that's the past. That's what happened to us, what Jesus has done for us. But it also looks ahead. It looks ahead to how we now live in that freedom. Or first, how we don't live. Because just like as you achieve those milestones in life, and with them, with most of them, comes greater responsibility, so also with the freedom that we have in Christ comes great responsibility. Paul writes this. He says, After all, brothers, you were called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as a starting point for your sinful flesh. Now the works of the sinful flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, complete lack of restraint, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, discord, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, orgies, and things similar to these. I warn you, just as I warned you before, that those who continue to do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you picture... Christian freedom as a, a very narrow road, maybe even as a tightrope, there are ditches on either side of that road. Ditches that will keep us from ever going to heaven. The first one Paul already addressed. It's the ditch of legalism. It's a ditch of the idea that you must do something to be saved even though Jesus says it is finished. So Paul's put up a, a, a guardrail to keep us out of that ditch and now he's setting up a guardrail on the other side of that tight rope of Christian freedom, the ditch that is called license. It's that ditch, that, that concept that Satan sows in our minds that says, well, if I'm free, if I don't have to do anything to be saved, then I can live however I want to. Then I can satisfy my own, desi- my own sinful desires and I will still be saved. It's a misuse, an abuse of that Christian freedom to say, I can now live however I want. 
I can serve my sinful nature. That's quite a, quite a list there, isn't it? I mean, there are a variety of ways to break down the list. I think the way I would break it down simply is, is three parts. There are the sexual sins that Paul starts off with, and he, he refers to idolatry and sorcery. Those are first commandment sins. And then I think the rest you could, you could file under commandments 4 through 10 because they, they all have to do with our interactions with each other. Think about these sexual sins, the sexual immorality that Paul refers to here. In 2020, Pew Research took a poll of American Christians, and roughly half of them said that consenting adults having sexual relations is okay. It's just fine. Promiscuity is not a problem. There was a poll, not just of Christians, but of all Americans uh, a few years earlier. And the majority in that poll suggested that not recycling, failing to recycle your soda can, is more immoral than viewing pornography. Clearly, there's some misunderstanding about sexual morality in our country today. But I don't know, do we really have to go outside these doors to find people who secretly hold to views that are against, clearly against God's word? Are there some of us who secretly think, because we know someone or love someone who has fallen into this sinful lifestyle, that, well, homosexuality is okay? Or that living together outside of marriage is okay? Or that a no-fault divorce is okay because, you know, in the end, God just really wants us to be happy. Think about idolatry. It's very simple to define idolatry. Luther did it in the first commandment, right? Shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Think about your day-to-day life. What do you or who do you fear above all things? That's your God. In your daily life, what do you love above all things? The person sitting next to you, your family, your own life? Whatever it is, that is your God. What do you trust above all things? Your own ingenuity, trust in the government to take care of you? Whatever it is, that is your God. There's no wiggle room in that first commandment, is there? The hatred, the dissensions, the outbursts, the rage, the hatred, the murders. Who of us would claim innocence from any of those sins? Too many of, that, of those sins find their way into our marriages and into our friendships and into our homes and yes, even into our church. And Paul doesn't pull any punches. He says, whoever continues to do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not go to heaven. He's very clear about that. Whoever continues in them will not be saved. Because the freedom that Christ came to win for us, came to give to us, is not the freedom to serve our sinful flesh, but rather freedom of a different kind. Again, Paul writes, You are free to serve one another through love. In fact, the whole law is summed up in this one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. If you're a little confused at this point, I don't blame you. 
I thought Paul just got done saying we're free from the law, we're free from sin, there's nothing we have to do to be saved, and now he says, yeah, but now you are a slave to others. That's the Greek word that he uses, doulos. Now you are to be a slave to others, and, and that love is characterized and summarized by the statement, love your neighbor as yourself. How do these two things go along? Freedom and love as defined by the law of God. This is important. You are free. Totally free. Absolutely free. The freedom that no one can take away from you, only you can give up in your relationship to God. Christ has made you right with God and no one can take that away from you. That is an accomplished fact. But, you do owe a debt. Not to God. There's nothing we can pay to God for our salvation. We do owe a debt to each other. A debt of love. And while we don't need the law in order to be saved, because the law can't save us, we do need the law to guide us and define for us what love looks like. Love doesn't look like screaming for the right to kill an unborn child. Love doesn't look like so many of the other things that we see in our culture and in our own nation where people want liberty to hurt others, to harm others, to harm themselves. That's not true liberty. Paul defines what true liberty looks like. He says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's several things that I think you want to take note of in this verse as Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't say, thou shalt be gentle and patient and kind. He says, you will be. It's not a command, it is a statement. This is who you are. This is who you will be. Because you're a Christian. Like Jesus talked about in Matthew 7. If you make the tree good, it's going to bear good fruit. You have been made good into good trees by virtue of your baptism, by virtue of the faith the Spirit has created in your heart. You are a good tree. You will bear good fruit. Just like I can't go out and scream at an apple tree to bear fruit. I don't have to, because that's the nature of the apple tree. So, I don't have to scream at you, fellow Christians, to bear good fruit. That's who you are. That is, how God, that is what God made you to be. Notice also, in contrast to how Paul described the acts of the sinful flesh, he, he says, he describes the fruit of the Spirit as far as changed attitudes. Not specific acts, but rather a changed attitude. Again, that, that applies to the good tree bears good fruit, right? If we are made good, if our attitudes are changed, then our actions, our words, and our thoughts will all be changed as well. Paul also says, it's kind of, Curious, the way he phrases this. Against such things there is no law. What does that mean? There is no law against being patient and kind and self-controlled. Well, I, I think he's, he's comparing these two things. So, the things that God forbids are summarized in the Ten Commandments, right? That's a, a restrictive list. But enumerating the good that we can do, the fruit that we can bear, the love that we can show for others, who could come up with that list? There are endless opportunities every single day, every single hour of our lives to do good, to show love for other people. 
There's no law against those things. You are free to be outrageously, recklessly loving to one another. But there's the rub. If we're free now to love one another, if we're free to love one another as ourselves, then why do we often go back to serving our own sinful flesh? Why do we become slaves once again? Well, Paul explains that too. He says, the sinful flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful flesh. In fact, these two continually oppose one another so that you do not continue to do these things you want to do. The fiercest war that is raging in our world today is not the one in Ukraine. It's not the one taking place in courtrooms or legislative chambers. It's one that will never make the headlines. It's the war that is going on right here and in you. In the Christian heart and mind, there is a war raging between the sinful flesh and the new man. You can't see it but I know you feel it. It's a good thing that you feel that because it means that God has given you faith. He has created you new, given you a new spirit that goes to war against the sinful flesh. You know that feeling, though, of being torn. The unbelieving world doesn't know it. Those who continue to serve their sinful desires, they don't know what this battle feels like, but you do. As Paul describes so clearly in Romans 7, I know the good I want to do, and yet the evil that I do not want to do, that's what I keep on doing. Who of us wouldn't agree with that sentiment on a daily basis? Who of us wakes up and says, I want to hurt my spouse today. I want to lie to them. I want to be lazy at my job. I want to not show my love for my children. I want to flip the fingers of somebody on the belt line. Who of us wakes up and says, and yet what do we find each and every day? Those things that we don't want to do, that we keep on doing, that battle that rages on is a lifelong battle that won't be done until the Lord buries this sinful flesh in the ground and takes us home to heaven. But the good news is that just because the battle rages on doesn't mean that the war, the outcome of the war is uncertain. Again, back to Paul. He says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful flesh with its passions and desires. Now, in polite Roman company, no respectable Roman citizen would ever portray or cast crucifixion in a positive light. If you've seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, you can understand why. Crucifixion was such a gruesome and brutal form of execution that it was reserved only for non-Roman citizens and slaves and only those non-citizens and slaves who had committed the very worst crimes imaginable. So why does Paul bring up crucifixion here? Why does he want us to picture a bloody person hanging by nails from a cross? Well, his point is that there's no reasoning with There is no rehabilitating. There is no reforming the sinful flesh. There's only one thing to do with the sinful flesh, and that is to kill it without pity and without mercy. And that's what Jesus has done for us through baptism. Paul says earlier in Galatians chapter 2 about himself, but is true of all of us who are baptized, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The I... The sinful flesh, that's hanging on a cross. 
Now Christ lives in me. Probably the most horrific part about crucifixion is the fact that it intentionally delays death. Victims of crucifixion could hang there for days in the the glaring sun before they suffocated and died. It's kind of the same thing with the sinful flesh. Yes, when you were baptized, Christ put your sinful flesh to death. But it's still hanging up there on the cross and it's scraping and clawing and trying to get down and retake control of your life. And the devil wants to tempt you to take those nails out for him. So what do we do? How do we, how do we deal with this battle going on inside of us? A battle that we all must admit we lose every single day. Well, we have to go back to our baptism. And that's really all that repentance is, is going back to baptism. Holding out our sins, holding out our sinful nature, and handing it over to God and saying, God, please put this to death. And as we do, as we repent, as we confess, and as we look to Jesus for forgiveness, the Holy Spirit is taking a sledgehammer and driving the nails ever deeper into that sinful flesh. And it will produce results. The Lord promises that this life of repentance, this bad life of, of war that we live, it will produce results. Finally, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in step with it. These are military terms. So picture a squad of soldiers and they're all marching in perfect lockstep. That's what Paul is describing the church as. That we are walking in lockstep, first of all with the Spirit, and then second of all with each other. So as you look left or right, whether you know the name of that person or not, they are a free person, set free by the blood of Christ from the power of sin and the demands of the law. And so are you. And whether you look left or right and whether you know that person or not, that is a person who has been set free to love you freely. And so are you. Stand firm in that Christian freedom because that's the freedom for which Christ died for us. It's a paradox, right? And I, I've told many of you, and maybe you remember me saying this, that if you, if you feel that there's a tension, that things just don't perfectly line up in our heads, that, that we're freed from the law, but freed to serve the law of love, serve others with the law of love, then you know you're dealing with genuine Christianity. Because no human being ever would have come up with such a paradoxical truth. A paradox that Martin Luther summarized very nicely when he said, the Christian is the perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. And in the next breath, the Christian is the perfectly dutiful servant, subject to all. It doesn't have to make sense, but it is true. You are free from sin and death and the law by Christ. Free not to serve your own desires, but free to serve one another in love. Stand firm in that Christian freedom. Amen.